Welcome to my den. Now, if you're a little older than me and you watched the 1994 Winter Olympics, you may remember or recognize the name John Coyle because John ended up with his team taking home a silver medal at the Olympics in the speed skating division. So I am pumped for you to listen to this conversation today because I literally got to go inside the mind of not just an Olympian, but a great mind. And I say great because John is one of those people who is so captivating in the way he tells stories that you can't help but just linger on every single word that he says. And so today is full of stories. I want you to pay special attention to some really incredible takeaways from John's journey after the Olympics that have been incredibly impactful in his life. He'll tell the story of how he was a, an executive at US Cellular, and actually he's the guy you can thank for the fact that you no longer have to commit to a 12 to 24 month contract on your cell service. Uh, John actually was the one who created the plan for and pushed US Cellular to make that change and then all companies followed. Also, pay special attention to how John talks about how his speed skating influenced how he thinks about time, and specifically how you can slow down the perception of time in your life to where your life feels longer, more fruitful, more fulfilling, and more impactful. His tips really, really inspired me. As, I, as soon as we got off this call, I just felt so much lighter and like I had so much life to live, and I hope you feel the same way. Also, pay special attention to the fastest way to lose creative people at your company. John's been there. He is clearly a very creative, deep-thinking person, as you'll hear. And after his experience at the Olympics, when he went into corporate, into management, he has some fascinating stories to tell as well. And finally, pay attention to the times John almost died. Because if you're anything like me, you're going to leave this episode feeling like you have a, a chance to make a difference in life, not just for yourself, but for others, and to slow down that perception of time, take in all the moments, take risks, and be bold. And we all need more of that in the society we're living in right now. If you enjoyed John today, I would encourage you to just Google him. He is a keynote speaker. He speaks all over the world to hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people in any given audience. So this really special look we get today into John's mind, this personal conversation is something very few people get a glimpse into. So I'm so grateful we got to do this today, but John is a, a keynote speaker. He has several books out that you should certainly check out. So just Google him, John Coyle, it's C-O-Y-L-E is how you spell his last name. All right, now, without further ado, buckle up your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that, and join me in my living room with the amazing John K. Coyle. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today.
John, I am so glad to have you. Like, seriously, this has been a long time coming. <laughs> I think the first time we talked was, what, eight months ago? Something crazy like that? Yeah, like that, yeah. And I think I was in Colombia, and you were somewhere in the world. I don't even remember. I was somewhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't an alien at that point? Um, yeah, it has definitely been a long time coming. So I have to get us kicked off because the first time you mentioned this, I've been wondering ever since. So you, you said you're writing a book about the 55 times you almost died. So I really have to know at least three. What are, th what are three of the times you <laughs> almost died? Let's see. Uh... One time I was hitchhiking through Europe to try to go to the World Cups for speed skating and I got dropped off by this big red truck in the middle of the night during a freezing rainstorm in the middle of nowhere and quickly I turned into the Tin Man and I was freezing to death and three hours later I was pretty sure I was going to die and I decided to go up into a field and I built a mound of hay that I subsequently stripped naked in that field, put on the only dry clothes I had which were three speed skating skin suits crawled underneath the middle of it and slept through the night and woke up in the morning and I still had the skin suits on and stopped short of me behind me was a giant thresher uh, about 10 feet short of turning me into bloody french fries and as I hatched out of my nest this man's face you just thought that an alien hatched in his feet because this skin suit was bright silver pink and purple and I had the hood on and everything so that's oh one <clears throat> I once tried to uh, climb a waterfall in Jamaica and got about halfway up and realized I couldn't go further, but I was about 30 feet off the ground and couldn't go down either. So I was stuck there for about 20 minutes and then some people came and made a human chain and dragged me up over the edge. Let's see. I'm trying to find a good one for you. We can edit it. No, there's 55, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the good news is we don't edit the show, John. We, the, everything stays in, so the long, awkward pause is great. Oh, and I was sitting beautiful. over here literally hacking in the background because I have I had COVID a couple weeks ago. The, um, the bronchitis or whatever it is I'm going to get testing is like settling in. So anyway, long, awkward pauses and off, off audio coughing hacks are, are going to be the name of the game. I, maybe this will be the one time I almost died. <laughs> well, let's circle back to that. I'll think of another one as we keep going. Those two are crazy. <clears throat> oh my gosh. So I love everything about just you and your brand and what you teach on because um, there's this sort of phenomenon. I think you shared this with me the first time we talked. I was in Colombia and I think you said something to the effect of, it's interesting to find other people who are sort of living constantly dangerously or constantly on the, the edge of danger instead of sitting at home, sit, you know, what, whatever, just letting time pass by. And um, I, it just reminds me, do you follow the YouTube channel, the um, Seek Discomfort guys? I've not heard of that, but I will after this. Oh my gosh. <clears throat> They're so interesting. The first time I saw them, I thought, you of you just instantly because these guys will do things like you know they jump into um, a cargo train riding from Ethiopia down to South Africa that is carrying only cargo and they try to survive through the Sahara Desert nights you know that things like amazing. that um, or they'll you know they went to this remote place in India and of course they're content creators they're lugging all their equipment up right. this these remote mountains in India where these <clears throat> this um, 
honey is produced by these bees that are apparently the honey has some sort of hallucinogen in it and it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world and the guys harvest this honey the the natives by climbing these ropes that just go up to the top of these cliffs and it's so unsafe like Osha would take one glance at it and just uh, cry. But, you know, these guys, these natives have been doing this for so many years in India. And anyway, it's just, it's interesting to me how this sort of seeking discomfort element is rising up again, maybe in my generation. And maybe it's just the content I consume. Um, but we look to people like you who've done adventurous things and lived their life that way. And you're such an inspiration. So... I figured out a third one for you. Please <clears throat> share. Ago, uh, I decided to don the all-white garments and red sashes of the uh, Festival of San Fermin in Pamplona and run with the bulls. And so I lined up about you know, 180 meters from the entry to the tunnel. So it's about 600 meters into the race, or not race, but the run. And they shot the the firework at 8 a.m. Everybody started running, looking behind them, not looking where they're going, running into me. But bulls don't teleport, so uh, I knew they weren't going to be there for about 90 seconds. That slowed to a trickle of scared looking, people looking scared and running and looking behind them. And then I could see them coming over the hill, you know, six 1,300-pound bulls, horns down, waist high, super sharp, uh, six steers, 1,800-pound steers, horns up. They're there to keep the bulls somewhat calm. They're coming directly at me because I'm in the left-hand corner. People behind me on the barricade are trying to pull me over. I fight them off because I came to run with the bulls, not near the bulls. And as a few of them passed me, I jumped down and I just followed the wagging tail of the bull in front of me. And I knew as long as I stayed close to that tail, the horns behind me would be fine. And long story short, as we went through the tunnel, everybody was falling down and falling all over each other. And I stayed in the center ran through into the uh, arena where 25,000 people were on their feet screaming, and I was one of the last people to get in there. And that whole thing lasted about 17 seconds. 17 seconds? Yeah. But How long like did a, it feel to you? Like a lifetime. Like it's a, such a really visceral, available, deep, emotional memory. And that's, you know, a lot of the work that I do is around how do you create those kinds of memories. When did you start flirting with danger? Ever since I can remember, actually. I think I'm probably dopamine resistant. I just, uh, I'm not very afraid of very many things, especially physical things. So, and I was fortunate to be fairly physically capable growing up. So I was able to tackle physical challenges fairly handily that others might have to back away from. So as early as you can remember, did you, did you see yourself as a child when you became an adult doing things at this level? Was this just always a I was part always of you? I was leading the adventure. So, you know, the, the haunted mansion on the hill at midnight with no flashlight, that kind of thing. I, I was that kid. You're the legit Stranger Things kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. So how did that influence your life direction? Like if, that, if you're just a danger seeker? Well, I would say that in a lot of cases in life, bigger risks mean bigger rewards. And... So I've, you know, I made some tough decisions in my life that, you know, some people wouldn't do. Um, like, for example, and this is part of the story you probably know, but I trained with the Olympic team for two years and wasn't seeing success. So I quit the team, not the sport. 
And in so doing, nobody wanted that to happen. And I was labeled the wild child, the rebel, the non-team player. That one hurt, actually. But, you know, I went from getting 30th in the U.S. trials the year before to showing up to the trials a year later, skating off on my own, and in my first race back, breaking the U.S. record by five and a half seconds and the world record by over a second and set every single U.S. record. So, you know, taking that big risk to go train on my own turned into a big reward. You know, not taking job after college, all my friends are making money, you know, I went to the Olympics instead. Big risk, big, big reward. So I think that's where it's really helped me in life. That's so fascinating. And how many people do just drop off the team, go out on their own? Who takes Nobody. that risk? <laughs> just you. Yeah, absolutely. Why. And, you know, eight years ago, seven, years, seven and a half years ago, I simultaneously quit my job and got divorced. Started to try doing this speaking and writing business and... Now I get to travel the world and go to parties. That's incredible. I'm putting myself into the shoes of being your parents, or do you have siblings? I have a sister, yes. Okay. I'm, I think I told you I'm the oldest of seven kids, and my parents were both only children. They wanted a big family. And I just remember all the times, and honestly, this is embedded in the way we educate kids, the way we parent them. It's all about not taking risks, right? Right. Like it's all about follow the rules, obey authority, stay within parameters, X, Y, Z. You know, you can continue that list on and on. And, you know, me being one of seven, I think I fell into that role of as an oldest child being the protector and the one right. who makes sure my siblings didn't get into danger <laughs> because then, you know, if little two-year-olds walking off toward the ocean when she can't swim while I'm trying to watch the 16-year-old to make sure, you know, he, he's not off with some girls, like catching a right, like whatever. At the same time, that was sort of the role that I fell into. And yeah. I'm just, so what were your parents like? Like, how, did they encourage this mm. sort of disruptive, dangerous thinking or did they try to rein you in? They didn't know a lot of it. In fact, like the... <laughs> that works. Really she, they only heard that like four years ago when I was giving a talk and I told the story in the talk and they're like, we, we never knew about that. Um, but I will say that, you know, I have the extreme luck of having two completely supportive parents that, you know, when I wanted to quit the team, you know, all the other parents were calling me, telling me not to do it. But my parents are like, if that's what you want to do. If you think that's what you think is right, then we support you. So they've always been in my corner, which is, you know, again, such a great safety nest to be able to explore from. Yeah, that's incredible. It's definitely not common, I would say. I'm I'm doing a lot of work in this space right now with educators and with students and we're this is whole new news since you and I last talked, but just around where we started a tech company, we're helping students to match with micro internships and anyway, it's plunged me into all this work in the education system and I'm just finding how hard it is to break students out of this shell that we create around them that, and, and honestly, just the system, the systemic pressures to stay within a mold and to follow a specified pathway. Do you work at all with students or is it mostly leaders and businesses? Mostly leaders. I do some pro bono work with schools. Um, and I do teach at Marquette and Kellogg every year. So if you're giving advice to students or... In, or even just wanted to speak into the system that we've created, especially here in the U.S., what would you say? Well, I mean, two things we already touched on, but, you know, I truly believe life begins at the edge of your comfort zone, and we'll get into the neuroscience of why that's true. But, you know, if it, you don't remember it, it didn't happen. 
So if life is always safe and comfortable, the brain switches off. You know, it's this giant light bulb on top of our shoulders. It's 3% of our mass, but 28% of our calorie burn. So if it doesn't see anything new, something interesting, something scary, something exciting, it's not going to write it down. If it doesn't write it down, it didn't happen. If it didn't happen, well, you weren't alive, so you're basically dead. So life begins at the end of your comfort zone is, is completely apt. The other one that I would give is when life gives you choices, choose the one that makes the best story. Not the funnest, not the easiest. Um, the one that makes the best story is going to be the one you remember. When you remember it, then you're alive. Hmm. Yeah, there was so much there. And there's, I mean, that would apply to everyone. <laughs> Certainly not just students, but my gosh, the, the number. been so coddled, you know. Like my generation was not. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story. So we grew up on this dirt road near a lake. And two houses down, there was a Doberman named Dasher that was well-known to bite children. He did it all the time. And the parents would basically just say, well, be careful. And so we would all line up at the bottom of the street, like eight or nine of us, and then we'd all run past Dasher, figuring he'd only get one of us. Like, this was just how we lived. Like, that was okay back then. This would never happen today. Yeah, it's, well, at least, so you're, are you Gen X? I am. Okay, yeah, makes total sense. So you had... Your generation, which I 100% agree, not coddled. Then you have the millennials who were coddled by the baby boomers. And then you have Gen Z, which before, let's say pre-COVID, backing up, Gen Z was raised pretty pragmatically by our parents. So because they're Gen X, right? Like my parents are Gen X. And so we were raised pretty pragmatically and just taught, you know, life doesn't come easy. And so you have like this one segment of Gen Z that reflects a lot of Gen X, but then you have the additional, uh, I guess, strife causing things that have occurred, such as COVID, that Gen Z had no clue how to handle that. And I don't think, you know, parents did, at least across the board, parents, schools, et cetera, did a really good job of helping Gen Z through the anxiety and all of that. So now you've got like the pragmatism coupled with like a couple with social media and pressures and like this extreme almost run towards stability and safety, almost reflecting like the characteristics of the silent generation. Mm -hmm. It's like a very interesting mix. And this will be interesting to see how it plays out, um, John, but I have millennial friends who are having baby, like kids who are gen alpha and the level of coddling there is like very reflective of millennials. It's like repeating the same cycle and it's like struggle to watch because to your point, I don't see them being raised with this sense that danger is something to run toward, at least, you know, healthy way. I think maybe you're on the extreme, but at least in terms of like not being afraid to push yourself beyond the norms um, or to stretch yourself. That's just not a characteristic that I'm really seeing in at least Gen Alpha and parts of Gen Gen Z. That's not good if that's the case. Um, Because, you know, the the guidance that I, I read somewhere was, you know, as long as it's not going to kill them or permanently maim them, you should probably let them go through whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe this comes down to the, the phrases that we use as parents, that we use at, in, honestly in movies. My gosh. Like the amount of influence that Hollywood has over how kids think is just absolutely insane. I was thinking about this the other day. We had a a guest on the show a few months ago talking about um, what school could be. So Ted Dintersmith 
it does a ton of work on, you know, what we could turn schools into. Basically, they follow the journeys of these students who had an untraditional education path. And um, they've done documentaries and all these things. But anyway, this conversation around like in our school systems, like embedded into everything, whether it's teachers with a great heart or um, whether it's the the films made about school life, like all of that basically romanticizes this idea of one linear type of career path, one linear type of, you know, how you go to school or what the next step is after high school, um, how you follow rules, how you suck up to your, you know, to the authorities to make sure that you can get the best placement. And it's, I mean, I was watching... Never Have I Ever is a new like teen drama that's out. And it's still even created in, you know, 2022, still this underlying premise that college is the only path after high school. And so I actually, I want to pivot here for a second because I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this. So as someone who teaches on seeking, you know, courageous new directions and and <laughs> living on on the edge and seeking out danger, We've been exploring this premise of just college degrees in general and how the whole tide is shifting in terms of, you know, is college the best pathway for most people? And because students are still getting told that college is the best pathway, you still have this like one segment of Gen Z that's like, yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely getting to college. Like, that's my dream. And then you have about 63% of Gen Z that is more okay with the ambiguity and they're saying things like we don't want to go to college we you know we don't know exactly what we want to do with our career we're okay with taking a gap year we want to start our own companies so they're like uncovering this ambiguity of like types of career pathways that they could explore so i'm i'm curious to get your thoughts it's sort of a, a broad question but if you were kind of, if you could reverse the clock and go back to, you know, 17, 18 years old, and you don't want to take the traditional prescribed path that your you know parents or whatever have said, and you want to explore new horizons, how do you deal with that level of uncertainty? Um, let's say if you wanted to build your own career, start your own company, you know, explore something where you're creating your own path, you're sort of laying the train tracks in front of you instead of getting on a train that just goes on a predefined track. What like mindsets or choices do you think that those students should be making? Well, it's an apt question um, because I have a 22-year-old daughter who's graduating in May and she's going to take a gap year. And, you know, the, you already said the question, but I'm like, well, so what are you going to be doing? She's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, well, it's only three months away. Stop bothering about it. I'll figure it out. Like, that was her, her response. You know, for me, my 18-year-old self, I didn't know anything about the world. Like, I didn't know anything about the world when I was 29. I'd never had a real job, um, never worked for a company, didn't know how to do a resume. So, but I was fortunate that I had gone to two good universities, so I at least had, like, the resume to suggest that I might be able to make it in the, the real world. But, you know, I think today there's so much more entrepreneurial opportunities out there. And... You know, you show up to the Soho House or WeWork or some of these places where people are working on projects and they literally have a whiteboard with, I need a graphic designer, I need a whatever. Um, I think it's a lot easier these days to navigate your way into entrepreneurial startup activities or small companies than back in the day for me as Gen X. Like, it was kind of the company route still at that time. 
So college made a lot more sense, I think, then. Sure. No, ab- absolutely. For Gen X, it seems like that was still a really good route. And to your point, now it's not necessarily. And I would say oh, yeah. for the majority, actually the majority of degrees, not the minority. Um, so, okay. So maybe we flip the coin here for a second. Then, So speaking from your perspective, that's so me being a native digital, it's very clear to me looking at that sort of ambiguous journey and going, well, yeah, of course I would choose that. That sounds fun. Let me take a gap here. Let me go to South America for three months. Let me, you know, explore, explore, explore. And my generation's thinking that, well, then you have most of the people in your generation and the boomers looking at that and going, I'm not hiring that kid who's getting skills and is a world traveler and whatever. I I wouldn't even take a second glance if they don't have a college degree. Put So in from that frame of mind, like the lens of seeking out danger, and I know you work with leaders globally and, and companies globally, if you were giving them advice specifically on how to seek out people who do think out of the box and creatively and aren't, aren't willing to sit in the same job for 30 years doing the same thing, like they're people who think disruptively and you, you as a company want to attract that type of person, I would imagine, what sort of things need to change within, what sort of barriers need to be crossed or mindsets need to be shifted in, from an employer standpoint to make that a reality? So I, I have a whole talk on this, but I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you this, that creative people tend to get pushed out of large organizations. Um, and it, it, it happens in a very predictable fashion. So they come in, they have ideas, and they say, hey, I have this idea, and it's in a meeting. And then it's like the set in volleyball. It immediately gets spiked down by somebody, a leader usually, that says, oh, that won't work. We tried that before. Or legal won't let us, or marketing won't market it, or sales won't sell it, or whatever. And so now they're embarrassed. And by the way, that changes the neurochemistry of everybody in the room, not just that person. So they emit catecholamine and cortisol, which causes the prefrontal cortex to uh, shrivel and everybody in the room to get dumber and less creative. So now you've made the entire room dumber and less creative by spiking an idea. Wait, 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 hold, hold on. <laughs> okay, I don't drink, but I felt, I felt like I was drunk then for a second as you were explaining that. So what? So go, go over that again. So you're saying when someone Offers brings up an, up an idea. In a meeting that is immediately judged on the spot. So this is why you end up parking a lot of ideas from judgment. You want to separate idea, idea generation from judgment. Because as soon as you tee up an idea and somebody spikes it, everybody in the room, their brain chemistry changes. They get tense. They emit cortisol and catecholamine, which causes them to be less creative and less thoughtful. Which, so you made everybody dumber and less creative. All in like five seconds. Wow. So, and you're saying the person who judges the idea quickly and shoots it down is who's causing that. That's exactly right. And that's what happens over and over again. It's the worst few words ever spoken in any hallway or boardroom is, that won't work, we tried it before. And I've, I'll always ask, uh, you know, when was that? And they'll literally say things like, oh, that was back in 93. And I'm like, so nothing has changed in 30 years, right? Like, that's insane. Second thing that happens is that same coworker now has another idea. They're not going to bring it up in public and begin because they don't want to be embarrassed. So they bring it to the boss, and the boss throws that one out as well. Oh, we don't have budget for that, or you know, whatever. So now, they're essentially permanently shut down. They just don't bring ideas anymore. And then the third strike happens is they leave, because people join companies, and they leave leaders. The reason they leave leaders, 52% of the write-in votes is, my boss is not open to my ideas. 
So now you've just had an exodus of all your creative people. And this is how big companies go out of business, by the way. No shit. Just yeah. summed it up. Exactly. And and something you said there is so important. It reminded me of something I want to read here in a second. But if we shoot down the creative out-of-the-box thinkers, our businesses go out of business and we're seeing the same phenomenon happen with businesses that I you know speak with daily who shoot down the idea of getting young bright eyes involved. It's like if you've been steeped in your own tea so many times for so many years, wouldn't you want the people right. who think untraditionally, irreverently, you know, coming in and assessing it? I'll give you an example. I just had a company reach out. We're, you know, inviting large companies in the Charlotte area to this showcase we're having where students are going to be showing off the skills they have. The skills is the name of the, the company we're launching. And and they're, you know, these incredible student teams doing everything from app development for local businesses, web design, graphic work, market research, interviews, getting companies on TikTok, like all of these incredible things that native digitals are very good at. I had a company reach out in response to this invitation and said, well, um, unfortunately, you know, this is a cool idea, but unfortunately our technology has been integrated into forget if it was like chemical and gas production since the 1880s. And because it's it's a technology that has been tried and tested over time, we're not ready for these sort of innovative things. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait, 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 wait. In your email, 1880s was like the highlight. Like we don't want these young voices because our tech was built in the 1880s. That just sounds like a recipe of dis for disaster for me. Or when I'll get on a call and someone has a literal fax machine in the background. That happened just a few weeks ago. <laughs> so anyway, it's just like the same sort of thing is happening with companies today who are not only, you know, telling the age old story of we don't, you know, we don't want that creative ideas or we've done things this way for a long time. Right. They're now shutting off the possibility of accessing a new generation of humans who think very, very differently because of literally how we grew up. Um, and it just reminded me, I'm curious, do you know um, George Lois? Not no, he died like years ago. But or a few years ago, he was one of the like top minds in advertising and marketing for years and years. I just came across his work. He actually wrote this book called Damn Good Advice <laughs> for people with talent. But I thought this was really interesting. So it's like broken out into quick, like literally quick snippets of like, you know, it, it reminded me of your your 55 ways you almost died because there's 119, I think, sections um, but anyway, so this was fascinating. So he says, teamwork might work in building an Amish barn, but it can't create a big idea. So basically he goes through this idea of, you know, our accepted system for the creation of innovative thinking in a democratic environment is to work cooperatively in a team-like team environment, you know, get everyone's feedback and input, blah, blah, blah. But he said, don't believe that. Whatever the creative industry, when you're confronted with the challenge of coming up with a big innovative idea, always work with the most talented, innovative mind available. Hopefully that's you. Otherwise, you're going to end up with group grope and analysis paralysis. So he, you know, of course, gives the example of how Steve Jobs would come up with the very, you know, a very poignant idea and then literally 
take the train and just, you know, run, run over every other idea to make that in realization happen. So basically what I love about this is, you know, he talked about coming up with the big idea with a small group, you know, one or two minds and then executing it with the large group. Right. So anyway, how did, and I know that was sort of taking us on a rabbit trail, but do you see any of that sort of thinking apply? Like, can you marry that with danger? And could a company, if you married sort of this out of the box mindset with really taking the advice of George Lois of, you know, having one or two people come up with your big innovative ideas, would would companies benefit if they took this more like a danger edge approach <laughs> instead of the comfortable one? Well, you know, another way to instead of danger is just to talk about risk tolerance and 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 calculated risks. You know, the, the people that don't know me well think that I do crazy things. The people that know me well know that I don't ride my bike on the road because that's dangerous, right? That's crazy dangerous. I ride mountain bikes every day, and there's danger involved with that, of course, with rocks, trees, and cactuses. But I've had seven people, seven friends of mine, die from getting run over by cars because people are texting and driving these days. I used to ride on the road all the time, so I don't. So it's about, you know, what's that calculated risk? And divergent thinkers, creative thinkers, are just capable of thinking farther outside of the comfort zone than your convergent thinkers. And if you shut them down all the time, if you don't absorb them, if you fire them, or if they leave, then you just don't have that pool of ideas that can help a business grow beyond um, its current boundaries. And that's how businesses die. That, you know, the 50 years ago, the average lifespan of a Fortune 500 company was 40 years. We're now at 18, trending towards 12. So two guys or gals in a garage are putting large business out of business faster than ever. Yeah, thank you for that. That's so good. Okay, I want to pivot gears to get into this whole neuroscience thing, which I know is your, it, this is what fascinated me when we first talked. So where do you want to start with this? What, what's on your mind with neuroscience, literally on your mind with neuroscience? Well, it's a well-known fact. 98% of adults worldwide across all cultures and, and boundaries uh, feel that time accelerates as they get older. And it starts for most people in their twenties. Um, and so, you know, a summer as an eight-year-old starts to feel a lot like a year as a 20-something, and you don't know this yet, but which will start to feel an awful lot like a decade in middle age. And if you draw that curve, right, like it's sort of this logarithmic acceleration of time that most adults feel. And I graphed this once, and I was age 43 at the time, and according to the actuarial tables of somebody my height and weight, I'm expe I was expected to live to 86, so it's half done. But when you take in the logarithmic effect, I figured I have about 8% left if I don't change that up. So only 8% of my life experientially in terms of time perception is left to save. So I, I was not okay with this. I wasn't okay with the idea that summers were going by more faster and faster. So I, I called up my old professor from Stanford, Dr. Phil Zimbardo, who's I call him Father of Time because he's written several books on time perception. I was like, hey, Dr. Phil, you know what's going on here? Why is time speeding up? How do we turn it back, go counterclockwise? And his answer was, well, nobody's done that research. And I was like, well, sign me up. Ding, ding, I'm in. So that was eight years ago, and I've been working on this book counterclockwise for eight years. But it's almost finished, and I have, I have literally figured out how to slow, stop, and reverse the perceived acceleration of time most adults feel and experience the endless summers of your youth again. So that the book with the first research 
on this is what you're working on now? Yes. But the problem is it's sort of a receding finish line. Every time I talk to my favorite neuroscience friends, they always say the same thing. Like David Eagleman, he'll say, just so you know, John, just to remind you, everything I'm about to tell you is wrong. It's just less wrong than last time. And that we've learned more in the last 18 months about the human brain than in all of human history. So that's how fast the pace of understanding of the brain is changing. It almost sounds like it needs to be one of those books published as a, I don't know, on Substack or Typeshare or something, and you just send continuous revisions as the <laughs> science gets better. Yeah. That's, okay, so can you give us a glimpse? Yeah. What um, have you found? Well, so if you'd like a, a super short brain lesson. Please, absolutely. Um, so we live in the present. We live in the now. It's actually, we're actually slightly, slightly behind the now, but we are writing short-term memories to long-term memory about every two to three seconds when we're comfortable and safe. So right now you and I are basically taking a photograph that also has scent and sound and emotion and creating a photograph and putting it in a pile about every two to three seconds. And the hippocampus is what writes memories, um, but we can't store more than seven. So we're never more than seven seconds uh, in or out of the present moment. So we live in moments, not minutes, not hours, not months. We live in moments. The hippocampus then writes those to long-term memory, if, or it may not. It sometimes is like, like if you ever got to your job, for those that commute, and you don't know how you got in the parking garage, well, the hippocampus is like, nothing new here, throws out the photograph. It gets more interesting when the amygdala, which sits next to the hippocampus on both sides, wakes up. And it only wakes up for two reasons. Never do that again, or always do that again. And so, you know, first kiss, um, first car crash, those are two examples. The amygdala wakes up, tells the hippocampus, write faster, write deeper, write denser. So the hippocampus now writes 10, 15, 20 times uh, per second. So the frame rate goes up by 30, 40x. This is why things seem to slow down in really intense situations, because your brain's writing memories faster. So time seems to slow down in those moments. What's really interesting about amygdala-driven moments is they tend to stay at the top of the stack. They're almost never discarded. And there's more density in the photo, image, sense, sounds, emotions in those. So when the amygdala is awake, you're going to have this multiplying factor. This is why risk is important for creating dense, recallable memories. So what you really want is a huge stack of highly recallable, dense, broad memories. When you have that, that's when you live summers like an eight-year-old. There's one more compounding factor, and then I'll turn the mic back to you, is when you're in the flow state, so this is when you're doing your very best work, one of the hallmarks of which is, where did the time go? Like, where did those three hours go? Or time stood still, or both. It's because your brain, all of the circuits that keep track of timing, they just turn off, so you can focus on the present moment, and so you don't really know how to describe the time because you weren't measuring it. But those are actually really great moments because when the flow state is on, those memories now have a density four to five times uh, that of a regular memory. And so you compound that with amygdala-driven memory. If you're doing something in the flow state that has some risk and has some reward, you're going to write down about 200 times more memory than in an average memory. And so that's why I ran with the bulls. I mean, my whole life I spent traveling at high speeds with a group of people trying to kill me, turning only left. Like that was my, my job in short track speed skating and velodrome cycling. So I knew that if I lined up on that left-hand turn with a bunch of people running at me and some bulls, that I would know what to do, and I did. So that's why that 17 seconds for me is literally like, you know, a couple of months of memory. 
So that's the trick. How do you create more dense, recallable memories? How do you trick your brain into writing them down and recalling them? Oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack there. That's, I'm going to just start practicing that for myself, by the way. <laughs> but Absolutely. For those of us who are who have not been studying this for the past eight years, so going back to a second of you were sharing that about this flow state. So want to make sure I understand correctly. So you're talking about the flow state, say a writer experiences yeah. when, or if you're coming up with you know a business idea or whatever, and you're just in that flow state. Time seems to go by. So you said, if I heard you correctly, that if you couple the flow state with some sense of Danger or risk? Risk. Risk or uncertainty. Risk or, or uncertainty. Title. Yeah. Okay. Then that combined is what creates the deepest possible memories? Okay. So it might so, be, an example would be, you have this amazing idea at work and now you're trying to sell it through the system, right? But, you, but you're really good at selling through the system. You created the relationships and now you're working that system. I, I, this is one of my own memories. That's why I'm telling it, but... I had a great idea 10, 15 years ago in my business that we should get rid of the contract and wireless. Except nobody besides me thought this was a good idea. <laughs> I was actually laughed out of the boardroom at first, but I'd been at the company long enough that I knew pretty much every senior leader. And so I went to each one individually. I'm not very good with groups, but I'm very good at one-on-one. -on -one. And so I sat them down and I shared the data about the customer dissatisfaction with it, how people rated going to the wireless store lower than going to the dentist, and that our industry was just about to reach its growth peak and all of these things. And I let them come to the conclusion that we needed to change and that the best way to do that would be the first company to rid themselves of the dreaded contract. And we were the first to launch and then everybody copied us. And now you no longer have a contract and you're welcome. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, but let's, let's go back for a second. So you're, you're, if I'm understanding you correctly, in that moment, you were in your flow state because you were doing something risky like convincing or selling this idea I internally. Sell a very dangerous sounding idea to a group of executives that didn't necessarily want to have anything to do with it. But I was in my, that was my, that's my sweet spot is one-on-one -on -one meetings with people to convince them of the reality of data. So you were in your flow state because that was leaning into your strength. You played it in a way that was not a group, but to individuals because you knew that's how you could get this push forward. But simultaneously, it was a risk because you had everything else against you and you were creating a, I mean, that, that's a, that's a literal like category changing move inside of an organization <laughs> to say, we're, let's nix the thing that's the industry standard. So you're in that state of risk, but also flow because of this big idea. Right. And I was willing to get fired. Like I was going big or going home. I was, I was going to get fired or it's going to happen. That's where my mentality was. And another great like way to know if you're doing it right. If you're not willing to cry, if you, if you're not in such an emotionally attached state that you could cry over not achieving whatever this thing is, well, then you're not, you're not living all the way up. And you're not going to write down those kinds of memories. But, you know, and this is what people do. They're like, oh, you know, life is speeding up. I need to go take a, a voice lessons or piano lessons or uh, pick up, you know, take, start doing triathlons or go to Toastmasters. And, and those things don't have any real risk. And so while they do broaden your experience, so I'll tell you one quick story and then I'll, I'll shut up. But I was telling this to a friend of mine. We were walking a mountain in Monterey, Mexico. And she's like, oh, crud, you're going to make me do it. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, 
I got invited to sing in front of 5,000 people last week at a festival this summer, and I said no, because I haven't sang in many years. I'm like, oh, you have to do it. And she's like, I knew you'd say that. So she called him back. She said she'd do it. She calls me six weeks before the event. She's absolutely in tears. It's going to be a disaster. My voice isn't there. I'm not ready. I can't believe you made me do this. I'm going to be so embarrassed. I'm going to be booed off the stage. She calls me six weeks later and says, today was one of the best days of my life. Because she crushed it, you know? Yeah. But she took that risk. And then there was the reward. And it could have gone poorly, right? Like, that's the thing. I'm thinking back in my own journey. And as you're describing that, you're absolutely correct. I mean, think just taking music as an example. You know, I started lessons when I was, uh, piano lessons when I was four. So I've been playing it for as long as I can remember. But the moments that stand out from that entire journey were when my my mom forced me at 16 years old to have a private two hour long recital of piano and voice. And I had to prepare for this whole thing. I had to invite, you know, at least a hundred people. I can vividly remember every second of that day because of the amount of risk involved, right? Like singing in multiple languages. She's a vocal coach. I had to remember lyrics and technique and, you know, all of these things simultaneously. And those, you know, that 60 minute window or whatever it was, I, I don't remember the length now because to your point, it felt like a lifetime just condensed into that. That was so much more meaningful than all of the other years of preparation of just the mundane sort of practicing every week. And for, well, I just have to say, I love how you gave the description about if you're not willing to cry or you don't feel that strongly right after you described that the uh, cell phone contract. So did you feel, were you ready to cry about the cell phone contracts? Because if so, John, you're my hero. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'll tell you, there was a moment I was pretty close to it because we, we had gotten a lot of support and finally got the CEO and, and everybody else on board. And then we sent the, the project proposal to the chairman of the board. And he said, I like everything about it, but we're never getting rid of contracts. That was literally what he wrote in the margins. And I was like, you know, this has been six weeks, six months of, of work put together this business case and he just scribbles on the notes in one flip hand of a you know 10 second margin and and it's over but we we agreed we would take we'd be told no seven times before we accepted no so we kept going at it what happened eventually well, obviously we, we know got, the end result we arm wrestled him he hired a separate independent consultancy to evaluate our business case and they came back with the conclusion that we were actually pretty conservative in terms of our outcomes and that we could expect even better outcomes. Wow. And you have to remind me, what was the, who was like, what organization was leading this? Because everyone was doing contracts at the time, right? Mid, so mid-2000s? We, we're a relatively small uh, wireless carrier called US Cellular. They're still around. They have about five, six million uh, people. And, and no uh, people on US Cellular, yeah. Okay. So then T-Mobile copied about eight months later, and then everybody else followed suit within a year or two. So fascinating. I did not realize U.S. Cellular was leading that charge. Yeah. But it, what year was this? Uh, it was, we launched October 1st of 2010. Okay. Yeah, it seems, I mean, not that I, I actually don't remember a time with contracts. I remember my parents sort of vaguely talking about it, but I would have been 11 at the time. So. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't your wow. concern yet. <laughs> yet but they were, now you know, I'm they, were, they were terrible like you know you couldn't leave you're handcuffed to your wireless carrier by these 700 dollars early termination fees per line so 
Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Well, thank God for that. I know it's tangential, but that's such a great example. Okay. So going back to this idea of coupling risk and your flow state or just risk and how your brain works, what are, if, if you're describing a human who's living a life that feels the longest, what does their life look like? Uh, constant growth, personal growth, uh, interpersonal growth, uh, with creative opportunities that have a risk and reward attached to them. So, you know, always trying to push the barrier, always trying to push through to the next level, looking left, looking right, like lateral thinking versus linear thinking. Um, those, you know, those, these are the people like I'm super lucky myself, like, I'm happy every day because I'm doing what I love every day and I'm always trying to find new ways to do things and it's super fun. And, you know, risk is fun as long as you manage it appropriately. You can't, by the way, the biggest moments like the running with the bulls or wasn't intentional but sleeping in the haystack, you can't live like that all the time. So I, I literally search for 10 of these things a year like 10 really big moments a year is enough because you got a nest in between. You can't just can't live your life on the edge all the time. And so having, you know, a, a safety nest, a place to go, a, a loved one that supports you, a, a home to return to, some financial security to keep you afloat. Like those things are all important if you're going to take, you know, regular risks is to have a really strong base to start from. That's really helpful. And I was actually answering my next question. So you, it sounds like in your life and people who have this sort of thinking that you're designing those into your life, those moments of risk so that you create the moments every year, but you're also giving yourself time to rest and build consistency or, or whatnot in between the moments. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the easiest ones is, is travel. And so here's, you know, a piece of advice to your listeners and to you, and you already know this, but I'm giving you the languages, you know, and I'll say it a little bit stronger than I really mean it, but design fear and suffering into your vacations. Meaning, if all you're doing is going to the same hotel in Cancun every year and sitting by the pool and sipping cocktails, that's not going to be a story. Uh, So I'll tell you a quick story. I got invited to do a speech down in Tulum about five years ago, six years ago. And it was first class, you know, picked up at the, with an Escalade, whooshed to this five-star, all-inclusive resort. And we could have sat by the pool and had cocktails and kitty cocktails, and we would have got back and said it was great. Uh, instead, and my daughter's on to me, she knows, but uh, I said, hey, you want to walk to town? Sorry, this was implied, Carmen. I said, you want to walk to town along the beach? And she says, sure, how far is that? And she's looking at me suspiciously. And... I said, well, I don't know, but I thought it was about an hour. I, think, I said, I think it's about an hour. And she said, okay. So we leave at like 4 o'clock, and it's sun, sun starting. It's absolutely beautiful, and the water is blue, and we see some starfish and manta rays, and we walk for an hour. And she's like, are we almost there? And I said, I think so. And then we walk for another hour, and then the sun does that thing, what it does in the tropics. It just dumps into the ocean and disappears, and now it's dark. And then the sand turns to coral, and so we're walking across coral in the dark with our flip-flops, or both of our feet are bleeding, She's crying. It's two and a half hours back. Don't know how far forward it is. There's a bunch of guys with bonfires over here, so we don't want to go that way either. So we keep going, and an hour later, and then another half hour later, four hours in, we finally get to town, bruised, battered, bloody, 
thirsty, hungry, and as we walk down um, Calle 5, she looks at me fiercely and says, this is going to be the best dinner of my life. And it was. It could have been hot dogs. It wouldn't have mattered. But I can tell you what it was. It was actually our first entree on this corner of this Argentinian restaurant was uh, grilled calamari with a lemon butter uh, white wine sauce with a little sprinkle of parsley. It was six years ago. I can see it right now. Because that's the way the brain works. You could probably taste it too. I can actually. <laughs> I can. <laughs> probably with a mix of your, you know, bloody feet and your. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's so good. And and those memories, I'm. You sort of took me away in this story because I'm imagining myself in places I've been before, and it's always, you know, those the stories that we gather up within ourselves only come when we're at the edge of risk. Absolutely. It's the hero's journey. I mean, if you're familiar with that construct. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like every great story has to have a crisis. I mean, it's pure logic. So, you know, every great story has a crisis. Uh, all plots. So all plots have a crisis. Every story has a great plot. So if you don't have a crisis, you don't have a plot. If you don't have a plot, you don't have a story. If you don't have a story, you're not going to remember it. Therefore, you must design fear and suffering in your vacations. It's just logic. <laughs> It's just, it's just, it's John Coyle's logic, but no, seriously, that's good. And, and what I'm also hearing you say is, you know, some people might hear that and say, well, if you're living your entire life just to collect stories, to tell other people to make you look good, you're, what you're saying is the stories give, they give you a gift. Right. These are for you. I mean, whether you retell them or not, the brain, by the way, I believe this, I don't have hard data for this, but pretty sure that the brain is hardwired to remember it, that hero's journey story. Every story passed down from pre-written history follows it, Gilgamesh being the most famous and first. But that story is probably 10, 15,000 years old. So for 50,000 years of oral tradition before we had written language, I think there's pretty good evidence that all stories follow that pattern. Then our brains begin hardwired to remember that type of story. And so when you create the hero's journey story, you're going to remember it and you're going to recall it. And that expands your life. Simple as that. Fascinating. Fascinating. This is, this is so cool. Um, I, okay. So we have to pivot to your poem because I, I love, 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 love this. So what inspired, I mean, obviously everything we've been talking about inspired you to write this, but like, how long did it take you to write this manifesto? Cause it's literally brilliant. And I'm probably going to hang it on my wall because this is the sort of life that I want to live for myself. And I feel like inspire other people to live as well. So what, what led you to writing this and what time in your life did you write it? So I've never answered this question before. So this is a first publicly. And there's a couple of people that know. So I wrote this for a woman who disappeared on me, who is brilliant and was not on any social media. And so I had no way to know where she was, what she was doing. Still think she was probably in the CA, don't know. I was completely head over heels in love, and the only way I could think out was to reach out to her was to write her a poem and then construct it into the video that's all completely tailored to her loves. So uh, Sing You to Sleep was something she used to do to me. Leaves Falling at Her Feet was her favorite song. At 3.23 in, that's her birthday. Like, the whole thing is an homage to all of her favorite things. And I wrote it in about 20 minutes. 20 minutes? It just came out. Wow. It was just, I was under such intense pressure to try to find her and lure her out of whatever she was doing. And, and it worked. So It worked. We eventually sat down and I 
she had seen it part of it online, but I played it for her, and it was quite a quite a moment actually. Wow, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. It illustrates everything you've been talking about, though this idea of flow and risk, and even something to produce a creative work like this in such a short span of time could only happen from the combination of those things, I would imagine. Yeah, it's a tense pressure cooker of being ghosted, which is the worst feeling in the world, in my opinion, especially when you really love that person. Um, and so I spent two years making this to make one moment happen, which was to sit down with her and play it for her. Wow. Can you read us some of your favorite parts? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll do some of it. Um, and we'll see how much I remember. How long did summers last when we were kids? Splashing through lakes, riding bikes across busy streets, crushes, broken hearts, bruises, and dirty knees. We all know summers lasted forever when we were kids. Everything was new. We really lived everything we did. And now, how long do they last in this world so mundane? I don't know about you, but I ache to live endless summers again. This thing here, clock, is a lie. We've been lied to, sidetracked, distracted, manipulated, this ticking, this talking, this terrible terminal tracking, of the ticking of time teaching us trivial untruths, that each second is exactly the same, that each minute, each hour, each day progresses in a linear way, and that each is the same distance from the last, that these ticks and these talks are an accurate measure of our past. This thing here doesn't have one of these, and more accurately, it has a whole bunch of these running at different speeds. Time in our brains doesn't tick-tock, tick-tock with equal density. Time in our brains is dependent on our experiences and their relative intensity. But wait, time is like a river, right? Well, sure, time is like a river, all right, just not this kind of river. Time is a river that ebbs and flows from trickles to rapids, waterfalls and pools, they bend, they bow, they curve, they dry up, and the brain is the same game. The river of time is to blame. The fact is, we don't experience time always the same. It is time. It is time to get busy dying or get busy really living. It's time to get dirty, to get sick, to burn out and recover, to fall in love, have a broken heart, and get back up again. It is time to eat a Maria scorpion pepper without milk. It is time to get back out there, to get back in there. Time to get off the hedonic treadmill. Time to unclimb the corporate ladder. I want to climb the ladder of my internal clock. I want to clock the ladder of my internal climb. I want to slow the hands of father time and time the slow hands of my fatherhood. I want to wake to find my young child's forehead is still that of a child. I want to love the love of my life and live the life that I love. I want to sleep the dreams of heroes and be the hero of my dreams. I accept that this kind of life may mean suffering for me. I will choose this suffering rather than let it choose me. It is time. It is time to create moments of such gravity that meaning supersedes all. It is time to create event horizons where the clock ceases to exist at all. For the people we truly love, this one sacred gift we can give, the gift of expanding time, it is time to really live. Thank you for reading that. It's... It's beautiful, seriously. And there's so much more in the middle that I love too, and I will link to because it's incredible. I feel like if every person at even just, even if it was just a few years of their life, not even the whole one, could take that manifesto, like that motto, and apply it, it would feel like our lives are twice as long. Oh, for sure. I mean, I'm 10 years into 2023 already. Last year was like 30 years. Um, COVID year was really, really long for me in a good way because I didn't stay home. I 
sold everything, moved into an RV and drove around the country, visited my friends in wild places. So like COVID for a lot of people was attenuated to nothing. Same four walls, same routines. That was really, really bad from a time perspective. Mm. And we're still, many of us are still recovering from that. That's right. This is so good. We could talk for hours, John. I want to respect your time though. So is there any, are there any parting thoughts that you would leave us with? You know, the summary of the book in one sentence, which is, it's a big sentence. It takes a lot of repetition to get your arms around it, but is that the value of an increment of time is not related to its duration. The value of an increment of time is not related to its duration means that sometimes a moment can mean more than a year. And if you can design a moment worth a year, once a month, you don't live 50 more years, 60 more years. You literally live 600 more years. And it's truly and totally possible. Thank you for that. That's, that's amazing. I, I've really enjoyed listening to just how your stories have played into all of this. And heck, we didn't even get to explore your, your time at the Olympics or anything like that. But thank you for giving us this like deep look at you. And I'm so excited to read your book when the finish line does arrive and we can, and we see it. But in the meantime, your your um, books on design thinking, I, I need to pick up a copy and also the 55 times I almost died. If those were three of them, I cannot wait to read about the other 52. So <laughs> thank you for putting <laughs> putting yourself out into the world. Well, thanks for having me, Hannah. Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Music